You are listening to M Pavilion podcast. Thank you for coming along on this warm, and maybe not so, not quite as warm as we thought it might be evening uh, in Melbourne. Um, so I'll just say, woman Jacker, and welcome. Um, we begin by acknowledging the Yelakut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Uh, Yelakut Willem means people of the river camp and is connected with the coastal land at the head of the Port Phillip Bay, extending from the Werribee River to Mordialik. The Yelakut Willem are part of the Boonwurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and future. Uh, we thank the M Pavilion for having us here um, on this wonderful night um, and in this fabulous outdoor conversation pit. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, there's a whole series of um, events that have been going on since October, I think, probably, October, November, something like that. So if you've, probably many of you have seen them. If you haven't, have a look online. There's a bunch of stuff going on, all very interesting and exciting. Um, the M Pavilion is commissioned by the Naomi Milgram Foundation, not-for-profit charitable organisation um, that exists to initiate and support great public design, architecture and cultural projects. Uh, this, the fifth M Pavilion, um, was designed by Barcelona architect Carme Pinos. Um, I happen to think it's the best of the lot, but everyone has their view. Um, it's pretty good. Good. Um, so our session today is titled Public Anxiety, Planning Safe Cities. Um, and we've got a fabulous panel, um, which I'll get to right now. Um, so I'm going to introduce them and just literally read their bios because they are super interesting and um, no underachievers. And after that, we'll get into a bit of a conversation. So to my left here, I've got Zoe Conliffe. Um, Zoe is an experienced experience facilitator, gender advocate, advocate, artist and social entrepreneur. Uh, she's CEO and founder of She's a Crowd, a digital storytelling platform for women to share their stories. Zoe is a PhD candidate in the XYX Lab, has worked with Plan International Australia and XYX Lab on Free to Be, as well as working with women to tell stories collectively as a way of healing from trauma and violence. Uh, Marie, who I've got down the end there, uh, Marie Grenfell. For the past four years, Marie Grenfell has been Melbourne's Deputy Chief Resilience Officer for the 100 Resilient Cities Program, uh, pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation Developing and now implementing Melbourne's first resilience strategy, Marie is a strategic and creative thinker, bringing a new mindset to old themes. Her work draws on an eclectic background in urban design, psychology, sustainability and leadership to deliver transformational programs. Her goal is a community-centred future in which cities and human well-being are interdependent. And in the middle, last but not least, Glenn Walton. Glenn is one of Australia's leading artists exploring cutting-edge and genre-defying performance interaction and community engagement. Glenn's a performer, writer, theatre maker, visual artist, musician, interaction, des interaction designer, digital instrument maker, having developed his distinctive style in both theatrical and musical creations. He's the founder and artistic director of interactive digital arts company Playable Streets, which some of you may have seen had an installation here today. Uh, which has a mission to create interactive musical play spaces that encourage strangers to become musical collaborators. Uh, and lastly, uh, I should have mentioned, my name is Orlando Harrison. Um, I'm director of urban design at Tract, um, which is sited just down the way on South Bank. Um, we are a, a landscape architecture, urban design and town planning firm. Um, and I, I guess by way of in, uh, uh, leading into the conversation with the panel that we've got here, um, the way we at Tract and, and myself have come into this sort of space of thinking about safe cities um, and, and perhaps that anxiety around safe cities is that um, we're seeing an increasing sensitivity of um, people in the city uh, and for us as projects, design projects or planning projects, um, to look at how the safety of the city is, is thought about and designed for and measured. Um, and so I, I guess part of that is, um, is managing impacts from um, events. So we have things that might be known as acute shocks, and we can think of some that might have occurred last year, um, terror-based attacks, these sorts of things, um, where people get a shock at how they perceive the safety in their city. 
Um, and there's other things that we might think of as chronic stresses, which are um, things that are putting pressure on our public spaces around uh, Melbourne and, and all of our cities, things like um, the competing modes of pedestrians and cycling and um, cars, um, big infrastructure projects such as the Metro Tunnel, which um, disrupt and change our sort of public spaces, um, all the way through to climate-based challenges as well. So um, between those um, acute shocks, um, and the chronic stresses, um, there's, a, um, there's a need, we think, to move towards a sort of safer by design. And, and so I'm interested to ask the panel here, and I'll throw to them now, um, just to give us a brief introduction into what they do, other than my summary, um, but also to touch on your view of safety in the city and, and how you see that, I guess, now and, and perhaps into the future. I might start with you, Zoe, just here. Um, so, I guess I'm very concerned with the female experience in the city and I guess I see, I see it this way. If we design cities for women and minority groups and with them at the forefront of our minds, they'll be better and more inclusive um, and more delightful for everybody. Um, I think that... Um, I, I mean, I've got so many personal experiences and professional experiences um, from the female experience in the city and the theme that just comes up time and time again is that um, among women we often, you know, we talk about this stuff and we know that it goes on and then when you speak with a decision maker or um, a man and I, I mean, I'm recalling a conversation from a couple of years ago when we did a girls walk in the city and an engineer said um, after speaking with all these young women and having them kind of take him around the city, he said, I've been working on this city um, in an engineering capacity for 20 years and I've never ever thought about it in this way and I have a teenage daughter and I wonder if she experiences the city in this way and I'll talk about that um, into the kind of more into the conversation but um, yeah, that's what I'm concerned with and um, my work has become more and more about public space, although my background's in gender advocacy. And I think that um, when we think about um, public space and gender-based violence and sexual assault and the way that women experience the city, um, we also have to think about all the things that happen that we might not see behind closed doors as well. And I'm just going to address the elephant in the room from the beginning. Um, yeah, my work now with She's a Crowd is looking to fill the data gap in gender-based violence. So we know that over 80% of sexual assault goes unreported. Um, we know that 9 in 10 Australian women experience um, have experienced street harassment and have had to modify their behaviour as a result of that. Um, so it's uh, the problem is, you know, widespread and huge. Uh, the like the data isn't there around what the problem actually is, and that's what she's a crowd is trying to address. Hey, Glenn, you would give us a summary of your take on this. Um, yeah, so I guess um, I'm interested in creating um, interactive environments for people uh, in public spaces uh, to hopefully get them working with other people, uh, get you know strangers uh, collaborating together, um, essentially to you know, have, have a bit of ownership over public space, maybe see a public space in a different way. Um, uh, I work a lot with um, creating works with uh, communities and with groups, um, uh, school groups and things like that. And uh, essentially, yeah, using um, uh, people's sort of imagination uh, and trying to make ways for to get their imagination projected onto um, a space they might see every day. Um, uh, some of the installations like this one over here is called The Plant. It's a bunch of musical plants that you can touch plants and make music. It's very simple um, uh, and very basic, but it essentially hopefully gets people together, having a laugh, being a bit silly, uh, making music. Um, I've got some other installations that are using people's skin, so when they um, make physical contact with each other, that they make music in that way. Um, and I've done things in galleries with uh, uh, conductive paint and a few other things like that. Um, it's all very basic. I come from a sort of theatre background where... Um, and and, try, and uh, try and put sort of simple ideas out into the public and see how they go and how they break 
um, and how they're changed by the people around them. Um, yeah, um, I also work with a company called Polyglot Theatre who make great large-scale interactive um, installations and play spaces. One is called We Built This City, which is just um, 3,000 cardboard boxes and a bunch of kids thrown in. Um, and that's sort of all you need um, a lot of the time to get people to reimagine the, the world that they live in. Um, yeah, so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm quite interested in this topic um, because I see... I see that anxiety on a daily basis um, uh, and the trepidation people have of, 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 of coming across something unexpected in their space that they see every day. Um, and whether it's a stupid thing like some playable plants or a big cement bollard, you know, it's, it's something that's different and, and I'm, I'm interested in ways that we can um, change our public space and um, get people to spark people's imaginations in that public space. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's so great to... So much that would be excellent to ask. And, but I'll try and give a bit of a rundown um, around my work or our work. Um, so currently my role with Resilient Melbourne, um, we are part of the 100 Resilient Cities kind of global program which um, was kind of seed funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. So we being Melbourne is part of the program um, and as is Sydney. Um, 100 Resilient Cities was um, established to really um, look at how we start tackling some of our urban challenges that are experienced in our cities around the world, regardless of what country we're in. Um, looking at the shocks and stresses that Orlando mentioned. Um, acknowledging that it's not just the shocks that are impacting us, but the stresses that we experience really um, undermine our ability to deal with shocks as they occur. Um, and that if we're able to acknowledge that social stress, stresses like um, social inequality and marginalisation, um, that if we don't acknowledge and work out ways to make people realise that these are, pro these are a problem, they will become the shocks of tomorrow. Um, so, yeah, really looking at how we work with our um, organisations. So Resilient Melbourne really works with um, mainly with local councils. So we work with the 32 councils across Metro Melbourne, um, state government agencies, not-for-profits, um, looking at how we can change the way we work, so how we can kind of adapt and do things differently, um, how we can thrive, so be more conscious of, you know, innovative emergency management and inclusive emergency management, um, but also how we can thrive. So not just talking about... Um, the way we change and the way that we can survive, but the way that we can really be reflective, learn from our experiences and learn how to bounce back better than before and create a better future. And Marie, in those conversations, what, what are people saying? Do, do they think we've got a, um, a, a safe city, in inverted commas? Do they think, is that anxiety around public spaces there? Is it real? What, what's the view? And I'll get Zoe and Glenn's view, but just in your conversations, what do you think? Look, I think, um, I think that the data is not conclusive. Um, so, for example, you know, and if we were to take the more recent events that have happened in, um, in Melbourne, so, you know, Burke Street 1, Flinders Street, um, and then Burke Street 2. So we've had three really, you know, close in terms of time events that have resulted in, you know, collective, tra collective trauma. So, you know, large numbers of people impacted, um, which leaves an imprint on the city. Um, you know, there's a, there's a... So, Rob Gordon, who is a, one of the um, kind of main psychologists who've worked with the, um, you know, with the, the victims and with some of the organisations who are looking at developing strategic responses and how we do deal with collective trauma, you know, in Melbourne, um, has said that, you know, there is a cumulative impact when we have incidences which are in a sort of close um, association with each other. Um, but he also uses an, an analogy that, you know, it's like... So, if you go camping, you know that you might see a snake in summer. But most people will still go camping. So, um, you know, the city is a place where we, we work, we live, we, you know, we play and we go back to it. But it probably has meant that we are more... We've changed the way that we look at situations. So, you know, if you work in the city and you've experienced a shock that has taken you by surprise, 
you're more likely to, you know, look around you and perceive things in a different way. Mm. Um, so I think what I'm saying is that the, the, the perception of safety in the city might be decreased, um, but it's not, it's not actually conclusive at the moment. And people are still coming to the city and doing what they're doing. And it's probably not the city as in Melbourne, it's more the urban space because mm -hmm. the sorts of events that we've seen in Melbourne are happening in cities mm. around the world also. So we should be positive, but it's a cautious positivity. Glenn, what's your take on that? Does that um, ring true in what you see? Yours is all about joy and fun and <laughs> <laughs> interaction. Yeah, I guess, um, uh, I mean, I, I'm probably not the best authority on this. I, I'm not really been taking uh, um, sort of much data from it, but I have sort of been studying, I guess, people's engagement um, with public works, um, public artworks, and uh, um, their sort of trepidations around that. I mean, that's sort of a weird thing to think that people would be trepidatious about, you know, walking up to some plants or, you know, um, engaging with an arts experience. But, you know, there are some pretty bad buskers out there, I suppose, and that's pretty scary. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I don't think... I mean, uh, Melbourne's, like... Uh, it's really interesting at this particular time because Melbourne has always been this sort of like um, public art sort of hub. Mm. Um, Very open. Have, yeah, people open. have expected, you know, a bunny rabbit playing um, bass out on the street. Um, you know, they've expected, you know, Ernie playing bagpipes. Um, and I feel like that expectation is still there. I, I don't sort of see any sort of um, change in that, but you know, surely there is something that goes on when, um, you know, the, the free flow of, of pedestrian traffic and stuff like that is um, stilted in some places. I think that affects things. And there, there have been, like, crackdowns on um, buskers and public, what you can do in public and the, um, the, the general sort of, like, um, regulations um, for public arts is definitely... T tougher? Yeah, is, is tougher right, than yeah. it was, like, five years ago. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, you know, those are sort of barriers and stuff, but I don't think the sort of, like, um, energy and the uh, sort of, like, desire for it is, is dissipated at all, yeah. And Zoe, I, I guess your platform is somewhat about collecting data. Um, it around is. Some it's of these all about collecting exactly. data. Yeah. Um, well, I was just going to say one of my favourite things to see is the art on those bollards. I just feel like that's a perfect example of making turning something, you know, really scary and awful and that's a constant reminder of what happened into something beautiful and inclusive and, it, and um, you know, something that everyone can relate to. Um, in terms of the aftershocks of these kinds of events, it is really hard to measure and we need to be collecting data on it. We've got the technology to do that. I've built some of it and it's possible and we just should be collecting it and it's on local councils and other decision makers to do that. Um, from anecdotal um, kind of experiences, I mean, I've spoken to Muslim women who are visibly Muslim and it's women that generally are visibly Muslim because they wear, often wear a headscarf and they are the ones that tell me that after these kinds of events and even I had one woman tell me that like she actually checks the news before she goes out on the weekend because if there's been a recent terrorist attack somewhere, anywhere in the world even, um, she's going to feel less safe and probably experience, have a higher chance of experiencing something. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that happen and in terms of, you know, we might all still have to access these spaces and we know that um, whether or not, like, um, we've got a natural disaster or a human-made disaster, people still live and work and play in the same spaces and do that for centuries and don't leave. And that's, um, that's, the, that's the human nature, that's human condition. We don't seem to, like, leave these spaces or change our behaviour too much from those things. Um, in terms of, yeah... Um, she's a crowd and what we do. Yeah, we, I guess we, I don't know what the original question was now. My head's gone on so many <laughs> That's tangents. That's a good thing. <laughs> but yeah, like um, we're interested in filling in some of those gaps and collecting data over space and time. Yeah. Um, and uh, obviously we have a gendered lens on that. And talking about collective trauma, um, so last year we lost 69 women to gender-based violence um, here in Australia. And, um, I mean, a lot of that was women that were killed by their partner or ex-partner. 
um, most of those, and it is the leading cause of preventable death for women aged 14 to 44 here in Australia. Um, so I guess what we've all noticed probably is that the things that get the most attention are the ones that do happen in public. So um, Jilma a few years ago, Eurydice Dixon more recently, those are the ones that really disturb people and the ones that get people out um, marching in the streets and that get people talking about the issue. Um, and it's often white women as well that get kind of that media exposure. So I guess something to think about, I certainly don't have the answer to this, is if we're interested in public space, and I assume you all are, otherwise I don't know why you'd be here, but um, <laughs> if we're all interested in public space or we're public space um, practitioners or interested in advocating in that area, what is our responsibility to ensure that we're um, thinking about the things that go on that are less kind of to do with this monster myth and to do with this idea of it happening in a park or in a laneway? How, how can we ensure that we're addressing the issue as a whole issue? Um, I don't think we need to draw lines between exactly, you know, this issue happened in public and this issue happened in private. I think that it's an issue with gender inequality and um, I guess at its root cause um, it's an issue to do with the patriarchy. There I said it. Um, yep. So, yeah, that's what yeah, I Yeah, no, do. no, no, that's good. That's good. And, and I guess as you're saying that, I was thinking that so much of what we see and probably a lot of you would have walked down past Flinders Street Station and I know very recently that was announced that there's some additional measures going in there. Um, we see these big, big sort of ticket hard infrastructure, let's call them, things, physical things um, going in around the city might be the, the siren alarm warn system, um, bollards, all these sorts of things, increased policing. Um, uh, and so I'm interested in, in everyone's view on the, the hard infrastructure versus the soft infrastructure, you know, the, the programs and the advocacy and the governance um, and, and where you strike the balance between that because probably, and, you know, we'll throw to you guys for questions, um, but we'd love to hear your thoughts on what, what you see as being parts of those um, elements of a safe city or an unsafe city. But, Marie, in the work around resilience for the, for the city, um, what, what's... How do you see the balance in that hard infrastructure, physical things versus the soft infrastructure that's maybe less visible to all of us day to day? I think um, something that we um, that we often seem to forget um, as professionals working in a city that is full of buildings is that cities are actually nothing without the people that live in them. Mm. And we need to constantly think about you know, the infrastructure is not just infrastructure for infra infrastructure's sake, but it um, provides a service and benefits people in some way, shape or form. And often we forget to ask the people who that infrastructure services, what is the best way to design for them being the people? Um, and sometimes we, I, I think that we don't ask the right questions. So we end up um, designing infrastructure and services for the very traditional set, stereotypical person. And we don't think about what um, a diverse range of people we have in the city and how everyone needs to be included. So how to create not just a safe city, but an inclusive city that really is designed for everyone. So, you know, obviously our city is growing. You know, we're going to have double the amount of people here or close to by 2050. Um, we do need to think about what infrastructure we need to serve, service the people in the city, but we do need to think about what that looks like and ask the people what they would like and how we, um, how we might create it. So, I mean, the intersection between hard infrastructure um, c compared to soft infrastructure, I think the connection is really close and needs to be hand in hand. And I feel that, um, you know, engagement, so the way that we actually engage and talk to our our, um, our citizens and the way that we can because we have taken a lot of power in terms of government and governance how we can relinquish a, how we can relinquish power and really um, put a lot of the decision making back in the hands of the community I think is absolutely imperative in moving into the future Glenn your thoughts on uh, hard infrastructure I guess in lots of your work it's 
probably more at the soft infrastructure end, as in it's not a, a, a yeah. it's not a bollard, <laughs> it's, not, yeah. it's not a built thing. It might be temporary or interactive. Well, I mean, that's uh, I guess you know the, the difference would be like you know the sort of the bollard sort of screams at you, and uh, hopefully there's also policy and stuff going on in the background that's um, hopefully making our cities safer um, just by um, you know. Um, like in a sort of uh, more human way and in, by creating connections between communities or making um, uh, particular communities feel safe if they don't feel safe. Um, but that definitely doesn't scream at you. I, I mean, I don't feel like an um, overwhelming sense um, of hearing about those policies and all that sort of stuff, but maybe I'm just not paying attention enough. Um, uh, yeah, but I think, um, I mean, I feel like those bollards you know, they're probably, I don't know, like, can I just show a hands? Like, how many people think those, bo make those bollards make you feel safe in Melbourne? Okay, that's interesting. Oh, yeah, no, there's a few people. No, so I, I, would, I would actually put my hand up. Cause, um, um, just because the next question to all of you, how many of you makes, uh, makes you think of a terror attack? A bollard, though, the cement bollards. Yeah, yeah, cool. So, um... So, yeah, so I think um, my, my thinking always goes backwards when I see those things. I think terrorist attack, and then I think, oh, no, they're there, there. Cool, everything's fine. Um, uh, yeah. But, but is, is that the difference between being reactive and proactive? You know, like, is it, is it the fact that it needs to be more than reactive? The things that yeah. are reactive tend to happen very quickly. Um, yeah. They may be done for politics or the media or whatever, whatever the reason is, mm. but the more underlying um, strategies, um, things that are being undertaken that are going to be far more effective and far more resilient into the future are yeah. the proactive sort of stuff. Yeah, it's like a cement band-aid. Yeah. Um, I, I think... Um, uh, and, yeah, ultimately what we need is, is sort of um, um, a place where everyone does feel safe, but that, yeah... That is also going to come from um, the way, just the way we feel in the city, and, and it's going to be affected by the hard. I think the answer is that everything is affected by everything, and the hard infrastructure is actually going to affect potentially in a negative way um, the soft um, stuff that happens as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, I feel like those bollards are like a. It's a similar thing to when people are like, oh, like another thing, another, you know sexual assault happened or another thing happened in a laneway, we should put more CCTV cameras here. And then we've done research and we do this at the XYX lab where I'm a researcher um, and a lot of the time it increases a feeling of fear and there's two things. You've got like perceived fear and actual kind of risk to you and they're both very important when we're looking at designing space. You don't just look at the statistics of like what actually goes on in this space. You also look at how people are feeling and if there's a perceived fear, that's really a problem as well and you should be taking that really seriously. And increased um, police, um, especially for some groups, does trigger a perceived fear of that space. Um, same with CCTV um, and also that really gross fluorescent lighting. Like why? Why? Um, but yeah, um, I guess that's kind of what I was kind of thinking about in terms of the physical versus the soft. I'm obsessed with um, creating digital layers for, of space because um, I don't know if you know this, but only 3% of monuments in Australia are of women. And the, I'm pretty sure the only monument in the grid in Melbourne that's a woman is the Queen and she's not even Australian. Um, and like if you look at the street names and the building names, they're almost all named after men. And so women just – the city has not been built by women or for women. Um, and so in, the, in kind of um, lieu of actually uprooting those statues or going and putting wigs on them, which some people do and I, like, advocate for that. Like, if you guys want to all arrange, like, just a mat – like, a, just a – yeah, we can do that later. But, um, yeah, a statue bombing. Um, meet me here at midnight. Um, but yeah, like uh, we actually we ran. For that. <laughs> um, we actually ran a uh, event here last year, and I teach this subject called She City at Monash, um, with these really amazing students, architecture and design students, and they all came here. And one of the things that we, uh, I guess, piloted here with a group of people um, 
was the Herstory Walk, right? And we walked around this whole area to all the different statues um, and we created fluorescent pink plaques, plastic plaques, and put them at the male statue and then celebrated a notable Victorian woman instead. Um, and we had audio, so everyone went into a little link um, and kind of had this audio at each stop and it was a very, like, reflective... Um, but, like, also physical experience of walking through space and celebrating these women um, and noticing that all the other statues were basically of men. Um, and so that's kind of the kind of thing that we can do to celebrate a space and we don't have to just think about more lights and more CCTV and more police. We can think about all these other ways of creating spaces that are inclusive and enjoyable for everyone but are also a little bit political and activism-y. Um, there was in Sweden, they're really good at this because they've got everything in Sweden. And um, they, instead of just doing like a, there was like a really um, dodgy um, bus stop. And instead of just like putting more lights there or making it, you know, yeah, more well lit, I guess, or putting a CCTV camera, they, they put up, um, nobody puts baby in a corner in like fluorescent lights, but like cute fluorescent lights, white ones. Um, and that kind of made the space, like, it's a statement, it's celebratory, but it's also, like, serving a function. So, yeah. I was just, um, just when you were speaking, Zoe, I was thinking about, um, so what you said earlier about the bollards have, you know, kind of really quickly, like, overnight became this piece of expression from the community. So yeah. everyone kind of came in and did, like, guerrilla art overnight and... Um, and the whole idea that after, you know, some sort of an event, we usually feel that there needs to be... We need to blame someone or something for doing it. And so politics usually gets in the way, which it did. Um, but, you know, if you were to invite the community to design something that could actually increase their sense of safety in the city, you know, what would that look like? Um, and that kind of invitation of reimagining our spaces... I think is something that yeah. is so important to our sense of empowerment as people in a city instead of feeling um, like things are not human scale. You know, like our relationship to a concrete bollard is like zero. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and um, I mean, surely our experience of the city should be more than mitigating fear as well. It should be about joy and interest and intrigue. Wonder. And wonder and, and play. And I know that's a big part of your work, Glenn. That's, so uh, I guess tell... Tell us a little bit about what you see when you've got people interacting with some of your um, musical installations. What, what, how do people sort of find uh, it? Are they challenged by it? Is yeah, it I guess. Well, I mean, it's it's pretty. They're pretty silly, um, and uh, that's hopefully a little bit refreshing um, in a, a public space. Or um, I find myself working in sort of public private spaces too. Like out in Ringwood, there's a big shopping centre called Realm and. Um, it's, you know, they've got this sort of arts precinct that's sort of built like a funnel to get you down into the shopping centre. Um, and uh, I find those sort of spaces really interesting um, for creating work in because there is this idea that there that they want people to engage with it as if it's their own, but also there's this layer of advertising over top and there's sort of like alter... alter um, uh, consumables. And yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. sort of um, an, a funnel effect that people want people to do. Um, uh, but yeah, I think um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That it stuff. And, and I guess <laughs> stuff. Ran um, out. I ran out of words. No, no, no. It's good. Well, I mean, it, you sort of think about <laughs> the the way we all use public spaces around the city, and you think of. Um, you know, the, the pr more prosaic and, um, I guess, less meaningful movement through spaces and, and using the access to, to other buildings or, or transport, whatever it is. But m much more than that, the layers of um, the way we use spaces for much more interesting things, I think. Um, and I guess I wonder, um, with the whole movement towards smart cities and, and measuring things, and Marie, you, you probably have a lot more in, um, insight into this, is, is how are we measuring things? data. Sorry, this is jumping in and out. Um, and so I'll get your views on that because I know that's, that's totally where you're at. That is data really important to us understanding what's going on in our public spaces? And, and do we have that data? Are we moving towards it? I think we're moving towards it. I think um, it's certainly something that um, there's a lot of motivation to understand how people utilise the city. Um, 
and you know, I, just a slight random tangent, like walking here tonight, I was just saying earlier that, um, you know, I walk past the city square and of course it's this massive hole that you can look into at the moment, which is kind of crazy. Um, but I just had this flashback of remembering, you know, um, the, the city square being built in the 1970s because like, Melbourne did not have a city square. So we did not have a place where people would kind of come and congregate and meet. And I can remember, you know, mum, mum, can I go into the city and go to the city square? You know, with my friends, and um, and and um, and then thinking about what the city looked like, you know, in the 1970s, and the laneways were the unsafe places, and you wouldn't go there. And you know, thinking now about how we really have like um, the identity of Melbourne and the creative spirit of Melbourne now is embodied in the laneways, and how you don't need to use fluoro lights; like you can keep things grungy and keep style. You know, um, and do you, and do you think it was le perceived to be less safe then? Pre-Fed Square, pre-City Square, pre-Laneways. Was that...? The Laneways? Yeah. Or, well, no, or the, the city overall, the public spaces. Yeah, I reckon that there was a perception of not, not safe. Def although, you know, I was allowed to go into the city. I was probably 12 when I first caught the bus into the city. Less people living in the city <laughs> as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, however, people living into the city has been one of its kind of safety saviours, really. So Postcode 3000 as a project um, really meant that we now have people living, working and playing in the city. Like, at the end of the day, it doesn't go dark and it doesn't become empty. There's always, like, people and stuff going on. Um, but back to your point about data, yeah, look, I think that data is being collected. Obviously, there's all sorts of apps and, and Zoe would be the person to speak to that. Um, but, I mean, one of the organisations that I know that you guys might know as well is um, Neighbourlytics. Um, so, coming out of co-design studio, you know, looking at um, how we you know, utilise some social data to really understand how people utilise their space to work out how we design in a way that is more inclusive and does design for more kind of sustainable, joyful, um, you know, inclusive communities. Mm. So you just want to touch on the data side of things? Yeah, yeah. Hit us with it. Well, yeah, Neighbourlytics is awesome. Um, yeah, so in 2016, um, I worked on a project called Free to Be with Plan International and um, we piloted it here in Melbourne. And um, back in those days, um, it was pre-Me Too 2.0. Um, and so I remember when we were like, we had this idea and I was trying to get traction for the idea. Um, and talking about it and like, you know, we're going to do this digital mapping tool where women can like map their experiences of the city and um, they'll be able to share what they love and what they don't love. And it's like now, I don't know, it was only three years ago, I think, or yeah, three years ago. Yeah. Um, and even now that seems like it seems like such a normal thing to do now. But then people were like, women will never want to share their stories online. Like they just won't do it. Um, but we got the project pushed through and it was really successful. 1,300 women shared their stories, um, which gave us this spatial data set across the city of Melbourne that showed us what women were experiencing and kind of made this invisible layer of the city visible again. And I worked as the gender advocacy advisor at the time and I had been like banging down people's doors trying to get them to listen and care and all of a sudden like after doing free to be um, they were coming to me and wanting access to the data and with a sincere kind of um, intention to use it to address this issue and I realized that there was a data gap and that like they simply didn't know how and the lack of data on a granular level about what was going on in their communities um, to whom by whom um, like why, you know, when, all these kinds of things, actually tracking it over time was just missing. Um, and um, that's for myriad complex, complex reasons, especially in the gender space. But basically um, working with that data for two years, just like it just changed everything, having that data. It just changed, it changed plan, it changed the way that they work now. Um, and we then scaled it to five cities, at which point I exited and started She's a Crowd because I wanted to make sure that we could continue to collect this kind of data and um, hold decision makers to account for actually addressing the issue. And I felt like the Me Too movement created um, 
a global imperative to address the issue um, and also it did the advocacy work for us in a way in that I was no longer having to answer the question, will women want to share their stories online because half a million women shared their stories in the first 24 hours of the Me Too movement. But I was instead answering the question, how can we go about solving this huge problem, which is clearly a problem. So, yeah, that's kind of my little spiel on, on data. No, I think it's really interesting that the, the, the difference between um, something that's, that, that can be heavily data-driven and that we can measure and manage all the way through to things that can be sort of esoteric and really good fun and pop up and, and disappear the next day or, or come along and, and grab people's attention. And, and obviously the, the answer is you need a combination of, of all of those things. Um, so I'm, I'm going to throw over to you guys for questions uh, in a second. But before I do, I just want to sort of, I guess, ponder and peer into the future with you three um, in your specific areas and just ask um, what you see as if there is this perception of public anxiety and yet we have such fabulous public spaces. I mean, we're sitting in one here and we've got any being used by um, holiday crowds and um, tourism tourist crowds um, nearby. Um, there's lots of conventional um, techniques and strategies and things that are being done. What do you see in your three areas, which are, um, there's a lot of overlaps, but they're, they're quite really quite different in the way they address things. What are the non-conventional things that you see where we might be headed in terms of public space, sort of left field? I mean, I kind of, I, I often feel that at this point in time, you know, when we talk about smart cities and, you know, it's kind of like 2019 and we're all thinking that we should be Buck Rogers and like wearing, you know, lycra onesies and that kind of thing. Um, we often look for these big magic buttons that we want to push and see the future. And my sense is that we, a lot of the solutions are actually really simple and it's the complexity is actually getting back to being simple. And we've got some pretty major challenges that we are facing. Climate change probably is the biggest one that we are facing um, globally. And we're going to be, you know, we are experiencing it locally. And I feel that, you know, the way that we, you know, looking at our city and thinking about the way that we repurpose our city, we need to stop actually building stuff and actually start repurposing stuff. And... Um, Thinking about how we can do simple things like connect with our neighbours is actually really important and learn how to have conversations. And I think, you know, um, mixing artists with policy makers and people that design, um, you know, programs, getting people to think in different ways is going to be one of our biggest challenges. That whole Einstein quote about we can't have the same mindset in fixing, um, you know, future problems. So um, that sense of reimagining our city, creativity, um, thinking about how we can um, hit more than one thing at one time, you know. So not just say we need to address, you know, population or we need to address air quality. It's like, well, we know that an urban forest is actually a great way to help people feel really good. It's, they're, they're really beautiful places. They help us with stormwater management. They help us reduce urban heat island. Um, they keep, can keep it simple. Wonder, you know. Sorry, yeah. I, was, I was just going to say keep it simple, but keep it holistic. Yeah. 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 Okay. Good. Glenn, yeah, I think. Um, I mean, I think technology will also be a, hopefully a helper, and uh, in that regard. But I also think of um, the popularity of like White Knight, um, and uh, the way that that sort of um, you know did something that a lot of people, especially younger folks, um, I know I did, uh, spent a lot of time in the city at night. Um, when I was young and uh, that really sort of, um, that festival has sort of made it feel like that's okay for everybody to do and I think that's really cool um, and, um, you know, get people mixing um, of different ages and different groups and people who live in the city, people who come from Mordialic or whatever. Um, you know, it's, I think that's a, that's a great way for us to connect with each other um, and it would be awesome if that just happened every night and we felt like um, we had the sort of like um, agency to, um, to be in our cities late at night and not feel, um, you know, uh, afraid or um, disconnected or um, like there was no, nowhere to go get a drink. 
Um, lucky we're not Sydney, I suppose. Um, and yeah, so I think I think that's it. I think I think it's really about um, us off, us all feeling connected to the city and to each other, um, and hopefully that results in a sort of I don't know. Maybe that's the holistic thing as well. That that helps us all feel connected. It's great. Sorry. Yeah, huge question. Um, I definitely I don't know, but I know that lockout laws is not the answer. Um, and that's exactly like the kind of response that's driven by fear that is just not the direction we need to go into. Um, I was actually uh, harassed at White Night. Um, so just wanted to yeah, no. offer a contradictory, yeah, contradictory like um, kind of experience of it. Um, and I guess that's, that's the difference. Me and my sister both were actually. Um, and that was towards the end of it at like the 3 a.m. mark. We were actually working at the time. We were in our young t kind of early 20s. Um, yeah, and so I guess um, that is not the note I want to end on though. So let me think of something really positive <laughs> to say. Um, I guess... Maybe about <laughs> around the she's ground. And, yeah, and yeah. where does that what, yeah. where does that head? What, what's, what's the horizon or the, yeah. the continuance? I guess like I definitely feel like... Um, we don't, we can't address a problem or fix a problem if we don't understand it. And um, we have the technology that we need at our fingertips to understand the problem and data and the um, easy access and kind of communication of information is going to be the next revolution. It's going to define the future. So um, I guess that's where the answer is and I think that what we need to do is to ensure that the people that were left out of previous revolutions and designing our cities and designing our technologies in the past are not left out of designing for the solutions for the future. That's it. So, look, we'll throw over to you guys. I think there's a roving mic um, down the back there. Um, and we're really keen. I guess we've roamed all over public spaces in a, a variety of different ways and um, different views. Um, what are your thoughts in the audience around public spaces and public safety and anxiety and um, the fabulousness or otherwise of our Melbourne public spaces? This might be a question for you, Orlando, as well. But um, I guess we're slowly seeing, or it feels like we're seeing a loss of informal and formal public spaces. And with like rapid population growth, I'm just wondering what kind of techniques you guys think that we can utilise in the future to ensure that we have enough space for everyone? That's a good question. Uh, look, uh, my mind immediately jumps to um, part of what Zoe was talking about in, in designing for the future and, and, and people that have been left out of other um, ways that our cities were designed. And, and I guess what I'm saying is it's about understanding the way Melbourne now and into the future wants to use more public space or different public spaces. Um, and, and look, as a, by way of an example, I grew up in Adelaide, and I don't know, those of you that know Adelaide, not many people know Adelaide, but it was designed around a bunch of city squares, um, beautifully designed in plan, um, not very practical um, as a city of 500,000 or a million people, but I'm sure it'll be great when they're five million. So it's actually, um, they probably had too much public space and probably still do on, on um, if you are measuring and managing it. Um, so I guess my response is, I'm not really answering the question, but I'm avoiding it. Um, but, yeah, Marie's going to jump in. I was just thinking about, um, okay, so the city of Oslo uh, creating a, I think, one, one and a half um, square kilometre car-free zone in their city and um, have been doing it over a two-year period, um, which is actually pretty short when you think about the change required, um, and have been really increasing the prices for cars to park in the city. And, um, you know, what are they, what are you going to... Think about how much space in this city here is taken up with car parks. And then thinking about different urban centres and how we might be a little bit more innovative in people getting around in different ways. And so when I said repurpose before, like, things won't be different in the future, so how do we reimagine what space we currently have that might not be used to the extent to which it is now in the future and how can we make spaces a little bit more flexible so that they're not just for one purpose only but can be maybe multi-flexible use 
Is that a zoning? Yeah. Multi it should be. <laughs> what, what's your thoughts? Sorry, I didn't catch your name, but what, what, what do you think? Oh, one over here. I was just going to ask Zoe, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah um, I'm just wondering about the data that you've managed to collect from She's a Crowd and other sources, whether it's telling you anything that might help us when we're designing public spaces around yeah. what creates a safe place for women. Yeah. Do, are you, when you say us, do oh, you mean... About, uh, I know there's a lot of urban designers yeah. and landscape architects here who... Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, because it depends on who our customer would be. So, if our customer was like local government or a university perhaps or urban designer and planner. Um, I guess the there have been so many different insights that we've had are kind of and that I've had throughout kind of a three-year period of working with this type of data. Um, some of it is around the fact that um, it's not what you would necessarily expect. So you can't... Um, so, for example, you might have um, Flinders Street and you've got Flinders Street and Federation Square right next to each other and completely different data sets for each. Um, both are quite crowded spaces. Um, and in Flinders Street, the crowds were correlated with a higher amount of sexual assault because it was easy to cover up actions. And in Federation Square, there was almost none. Um, and so then it's a question for... we And we've actually done a bunch of interesting research at XYX Lab around... Um, so we analysed the... Pamela Salen, who did this particular research, analysed uh, the top three most unsafe spaces when we did Free to Be and the um, top three most safe spaces um, in terms of street signs and found that aggressive, fast food, fluorescent lighting kind of street signs that you might find around like that Elizabeth Street area um, or that you used to find around that um, Swanson Street area um, were the most unsafe spaces and when you had signage that was more handwritten and personalised and kind of small cafe type signage, you had safer feelings of like for women specifically. And so there are all these kinds of things you wouldn't even think of in terms of um, the design of space. You are listening to an Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Mm -hmm.